welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Church of NPR, but spiritually, but their spirituality uh, rarely goes deeper than vague spiritual emotions and spasms of self-righteous self-justification. But it's not just a problem out there, it's a problem in here. The church constantly struggles with sentimentality as well. In other words, a religion that is based on feelings. Without the liturgy to protect us, without the book of common prayer or some other similarly biblically based resource. So I guess if you're a Presbyterian, it's the book of order, I think. And the Lutherans have a book of worship and the Methodists have a book of worship. So without some sort of similar biblically based resource to guide the church, our worship too easily is derailed and perverted into the heresy that equates faith with good feelings and cuddly thoughts. Faith is equated with good feelings and cuddly thoughts. And by the way, brothers and sisters, the martyrs did not rely on good feelings to give them the boldness to confess Jesus as Lord in the midst of torture and death. A sentimentalized faith will fail you in the hour of crisis. In fact, what many people are looking for when they decide that they will indeed give this Christianity thing a try and they show up for worship some Sunday morning is the bread and circuses of cuddly Christianity. And instead of bread and circuses, they're shocked when they are confronted with the words of judgment and a call to repentance. After all, isn't Christianity supposed to be nice? You know, God is nice, therefore go ye and be nice. Isn't that what the Bible says? Instead of that... Those things which are necessary to the prequel to receive God's grace, they're they're put off. Their expectations are not met. But thanks be to God, His Word and the teaching of the gospel will not allow us to wallow in sentimentality. And that brings us to Mary's song this morning, the words that we heard in Scripture today. So let me set the the scene here. After saying yes to God and opening her life to be the mother of the Savior, Mary goes to visit her kinswoman, Elizabeth. And following their conversation, their exchange, after, after what is happening in her womb begins to truly dawn on the Virgin Mary, she bursts into this song of praise, which we have now heard twice already this morning. But the giving of this child and the coming of this baby inspires Mary to sing. Listen, this is not a song of sappy sentimentality, but a song of revolution. This is not a song about sleigh rides or snowmen or chestnuts, chestnuts, chestnuts. They're like doughnuts. (laughs) Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. No, this is not a lullaby. This is a battle cry. This is not a lullaby. This is a battle cry. There are no precious moments figurines, but rather bagpipes and drums. Given the power structures of her day, this is a dangerous song. 
sung in the confidence that God has acted on behalf of His people. So the Blessed Virgin Mary in the song that we all just offered up to God this morning is not meek and mild here. No, she sings a song that sounds a lot like the battle songs sung by other great women of the Bible, of Israel's past, like Deborah, who did that sentimental, sweet, cuddly thing of like driving a tent peg through somebody's head when they were asleep. That was, was that Deborah? JL, that's right, that was JL. Sweet, sweet lady. Here, here, come, General, have a nap in my tent. While he's sleeping, a new thought enters his mind. It rings in harmony with the victory song sung with with, with the, the song that Miriam sang when Moses led the people of Israel through the Red Sea and God defeated the enemies of Israel. It's back in Exodus chapter um, chapter 16. You might remember this. This is after Pharaoh and his armies have been drowned in the Red Sea. Mir- and Miriam sung to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Ha, 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 God fil- killed Pharaoh's army. That is not sentimental music. That's dangerous music. It actually sounds a lot like the song sung by uh, I mean, by uh, Hannah back in the Old Testament as well. Back in First um, Samuel chapter two, Samuel uh, Samuel was the son. He was a judge over Israel. The son of Hannah. Hannah had been barren, but God promises her a son, and Hannah becomes pregnant with Samuel, and he's going to be the judge and ruler over Israel until God allows them to have a king. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation." So Mary's song is also a song about how God is going to go to war with the false prophets and pretentious principalities of our fallen world. This song, we call it the Magnificat. The Magnificat proclaims that God is about to tear down the bloody and false idols that we love and trust and obey. And after the, and, and the shocking thing, the shocking thing is that he is going to do it in a way that the cosmic forces that are hostile to God cannot even begin to cope with. Mary praises God for the way that he has noticed her in her humility. God notices Mary in her humility. And by the way, church, if we were to pray a prayer for the church this morning, it would be make us humble again, not make us great again. God notices and exalts humility. She rejoices that God is reaching His mighty arm down into history. He's going to get His feet muddy and His hands bloody. He's going to turn everything upside down. And then this is what Mary sings. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He he has exalted the state of the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. And in this inspired song of Mary, God proclaims that God is against, as in not on the side of, the movers and shakers of society. 
the influential, the scoffing academic, the sneering cultural elite, the wealthy, the politically powerful, the comfortable, the secure. God is actively bringing down the mighty and exalting the humble. He is filling the hungry and the rich he rejects utterly and sends them away. And before we get our collective drawers in a knot, this is not because wealth or power or success or influence or intellect are inherently bad. In fact, we would rightly say that all those attributes belong to God himself. Those are all attributes of God. Nobody has more riches than God. God is the richest. He is the most intellectual, the most influential. He's the most powerful and successful. So those are inherently not bad things. They're actually attributes of God. The problem is this, is that we have turned these things into false gods. We've worshipped the attributes and not the one to whom they are attributed. Idols that God demands that must be torn down and overthrown. We make them the center of our lives. We think that money, and let me just say one this word and let it rest out there for a moment. Not just money, but success. We, have, we think that success or significance, oh, I don't worship money, preacher, but I, I want people to notice me. I don't, I don't worship power. I just want my kids to be better than your kids because that will give me significance or admiration Or the, or the black hole of the need to be seen as important. Those things that drive us, that's idolatry. Tim Keller says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Is success more important to you than God? Are your kids more important to you than God? Is your significance more important to you, to you than God? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what God could only give. The counterfeit God, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. An idol is, any, is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I will feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. And we all, oh, I'm not the, the mighty sitting on the throne. Mm-mm, don't have to worry about me. No, we have an idol. So Mary's Magnificat is not a song of cozy sentiment. Sentimentality allows us the soft comfort and the saccharine sweet emotions of the season that we're in right now, 
while leaving our sin and our rebellion against God, our hellish and damnable narcissism uncontested. Sharon Hody Miller writes, when the gospel requires the slightest bit of sacrifice, the sentimental Christian shows resistance. The sentimental Christian manifests tremendous inconsistency between what she professes and the personal life she leads. Outside of church, she shrinks from monetary generosity or kindness in the face of evil. Sacrifice has no place in her life, in her life, not even the smallest of sacrifices, such as abstinence before marriage or drinking responsibly. Listen, Mary's song is a song about God's judgment. This is really taking the ho, ho, ho right out of this holiday. Mary's song is a song about God's judgment. And how is that judgment coming? God chooses. This is God's judgment against a rebellious and lost world. Here comes the judgment of God. Here's what it looks like. He chooses to enter the womb of a humble virgin. That's the judgment of God. He comes to take up residence in the womb of a Palestinian Jewish girl. That's the judgment of God against the world. And to inaugurate his time on planet Earth as a helpless child of a peasant woman. Because of Mary's humble obedience and openness to what God is doing in her, because of what has just occurred, because she is the venue and vehicle through which God's judgment will begin on the earth, she is more important than Caesar. God is going to change history, and he is not going to do it through Augustus Caesar or Herod the Great or the might of Rome's legions, which now lie in the dust, or even the religious establishment in Jerusalem. No, he is going to do it through Mary's baby. Mary is more important than Caesar. Nobody sings from generation to generation, we will all call Caesar Augustus blessed. And I kind of liked Caesar Augustus. I liked the Pax Romana. He's going to do it through Mary's baby, who is going to grow up, get ready. There, here's his position of power and authority. Mary's baby is going to grow up and be a carpenter. Wow, that's impressive. And he's going to come from a big, big city that you can walk across on foot in 10 minutes called Nazareth. William Billings, who was the father of American shape note singing, penned these lines, Seek not in courts nor palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. The Almighty God would take on flesh and be born as a peasant and laid to sleep in a feed trough that he would do such a thing is not cute and cuddly. Sweet baby Jesus with your fleecy golden diapers. You have to know Talladega Nights, I'm sorry. 
No, this is God's frontal assault on the devil and all his works, the false values, the vain pomp and glory of this world, and the sinful desires of our flesh. The coming of this child is God's judgment against the false gods of the culture and the false salvation of military might or material security or physical comfort or prestige. Beloved, if we let ooey-gooey sentimentality consume our understanding of Christmas and all that leads up to us, all, all that leads up to it, we will no longer be celebrating a Christian holiday. Because the incarnation of God as Mary's baby is not all there is to the story. And I'm so glad we sung, um, was, is Townend, is, is Stuart Townend's song, From the Squalor of a Stable. That's, that tells the whole story. I'm so glad we sung that this morning. Because the story does begin in a manger, but it ends on a Roman cross with a real man dying. And it is consummated at an empty tomb with that same man being raised back back to life again. The manger begins the story of God's conquest. What starts in a manger becomes the conquest of God. Here is the fundamental shock, and if you don't remember anything else, this is the fundamental shock of Mary's dangerous song. God used the power of the womb to overcome the power of the tomb. God used the power of the womb to overcome the power of the tomb. God used Mary's womb to bring into the world the one who would trample down death by death, the one who shouts in victory as he crushes the grave and Satan beneath his feet on that very first Easter Sunday morning. You see, sentimentality is not enough to overturn the depth of human sin and its effects. The depth of our brokenness is so great that God himself has to be tortured and nailed to a cross to cure our sickness. Tim Keller writes, The salvation Jesus achieved came not through strength, but through surrender, service, sacrifice, and death. This is one of the great messages of the Bible. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That is how God does it, and that is what we are celebrating this morning. So here is the application, because I know that's kind of like 30,000 feet theology. Well, what's the application in my life at my house today? Well, here it is. First of all, and some of us really need to hear this, if you are lowly, if you feel humble and small, if you see yourself as ordinary, if you think that you might have just maybe achieved mediocrity, great news. There is great news of joy for you because God puts such people on the top of his list as those he chooses to use and exalt. Do not grieve, but rejoice. God has looked on the lowly estate of his servant. He still does. 
God, make us humble again. Now, I've said this before, and I have to say, I'm so pleased and blessed to, to hear that and see, really, that this has actually been followed by many of us at Christ Church. But as I've said before, many of us at Christ Church are on the track to be, or perhaps already are, high achievers and high income earners. As this happens, brothers and sisters, the trajectory of your life, if you are not vigilant, is to move into a neighborhood where most people make at least and maybe more money than you do. There will be a steady pressure to make sure that you have all the trappings that your colleagues in whatever field you're in and your socioeconomic bracket embrace. Children at the right schools, vacations in the right places, the right kind of material possessions that signal where you belong in the socioeconomic totem pole. And little by little, an attitude of entitlement, of pride is going to creep into your heart and you won't even know that it is there. And with all of this comes, if we allow this to happen, all of this comes with a blindness to the possibility that we are in fact becoming exactly the kind of people that God has set himself against. The mighty that he has brought down from their thrones and the rich he has sent away empty. So what do we do to avoid this? I want to know how you do not, I don't want to be that guy. How do I not be that guy? Well, first of all, see your career, whatever it is, if it's in medicine or law or finance or business or whatever, as inseparably connected to your faith in Jesus Christ. Your career and your following of Jesus do not exist in separate hermetically sealed categories. They are one and the same. If you are a follower of Jesus, your career is a part of your discipleship. So ask yourself, since this is your profession, how can I serve God and my neighbor in my field of endeavor? As a teacher, as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a banker, how do I serve God in my profession? Well, I can't do that. I can't serve God in my profession. You're in the wrong profession. But you probably can. Be vigilant about falling into step with the idolatry of success. And by the way, preachers are not exempt from this. We have a different set of criteria that we're measuring ourselves by or measuring ourselves against other people by. It's just as insidious, it's just as idolatrous, and it can lead to just as much to, become, to becoming one of those that God is casting down from their thrones. So here are four quick ways of avoiding this snare. And the first one is what we did this morning or began to do this morning. Memorize Mary's song. You know, if you do evening prayer in the Anglican way of prayer, you're going to say this every evening. It's a part of our, our daily cycle of prayer. So learn the Magnificat. Let it seep into your bones. And then secondly, I do what it says in uh, Romans chapter 12. Verse 16, Paul commands the Roman church, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. So make it a point to connect in a real way with those of humble estate, maybe serving at the food pantry or at the rescue mission 
or maybe at the free clinic. Another radical step you can do is live in a neighborhood that is one step down from the neighborhood all your peers live in. It drives them nuts. <laughs> and it is a safeguard against becoming haughty. I think perhaps the most powerful thing that we can do if we are that person that is being blessed by God in our profession is to practice radical sacrificial giving. Now, if you think this is advice, uh, that it's really an oblique way to manipulate you to give to this church, then by all means don't give to this church. But do give radically and sacrificially to someone else to the extent to the extent that it actually forces you to change the way you live your life. You know, if you make $300,000 a year, $30,000 is a nice vacation. Oh, I think I'll tithe that. Generosity is the greatest defense we have against the most powerful of idols in our lives. Stanley Hauerwas uh, wrote, Discipleship is quite simply extended training and being dispossessed. To become followers of Jesus means that we must, like Jesus, be dispossessed of all that we think gives us power over our own lives and the lives of others. Brothers and sisters, may we hear, pray, live out Mary's song this morning because if we do, we will be able to say with her, the mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I invite you at this time to stand with me as we... Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.